Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us the history of the East India Company. After I put this talk together, Lorna sent out the programme for the year, and I went through it and I thought, well, that rings a bell, that rings a bell. I think six of the talks that you're going to get later in the year I'm going to touch on in this talk, because the East India Company was such a pervasive, powerful organisation. I think there is a connection to everything. That's my conjecture. The crown is set with the Koh-i-Noor diamond, which some of you will be aware of, and somebody could do a whole talk or just on that diamond. Its history is absolutely fascinating. If we look at what the Royal Palace's website says about this crown and this diamond, it says, the East India Company took the jewel from the deposed 10-year-old Maharaja Dublip Singh in 1849 as a condition of the Treaty of Lahore, and the treaty specified the jewel should be surrendered to Queen Victoria. So why does this quote reference the East India Company? This is especially confusing because in 1833, 16 years before this event, before the jewel was taken, the British government took away all the East India Company's trading rights, and it just, from that point on, became a purely administrative service on behalf of the Crown and it reported to the Governor-General, which was a Crown appointment. And the treaty that they referred to, the Treaty of Lahore, was negotiated by the Governor-General of India, as I said, was a Crown appointment. So why does it reference the East India Company? If you read up about the East India Company, or you look at the history of the period, you'll see a lot. It suited the British government well to have a separate body looking after India. So if there's any praise to be had, the British government could take that. If there was any blame to be had, it could pass it on to the East India Company. It's a trick that you see them play today. It's not a new trick. This has been around for a long time. And popular historians also tend to reinforce this trope as positioning the East India Company as the bad guys. I'll show you the books I've looked at. I've taken a bit of exception to this, so I'm going to position them as the good guys, at least for the first 150 years of their existence, after that, it does get rather difficult to keep that position up. So, the year is 1777. The East India Company, the most powerful company there has ever been, has just survived a near-death experience by being bailed out by the government in a crisis that was worse than the 2008 financial crisis. 34 banks across Europe collapsed. And as a measure of East India Company influence, about this time, three-quarters of uh, MPs were ex-East India Company men, and two-thirds of those MPs had significant shares in the East India Company. And in one of its last acts of hubris, the East India Company commissioned this painting for its headquarters building in East India House in Leadenhall Street in the City of London. The painting was described at the time thus. The principal figure represents Britannia seated on a rock to signify the firmness and stability of the empire and as guardian and protectress of the East India Company, 
who are denoted by children behind her. Britannia is characterised by the usual emblems of the shield and the spear and guarded by a lion. Various provinces are represented under the conduct of Mercury, the god of merchandise, eagerly pressing to deposit their different produce and manufactures before the throne of Britannia. Calcutta presents a basket with pearls and other rich jewels, which Britannia receives. China is characterised by jars of porcelain and chests of tea, the produce of Madras and Bombay by a corded bale, and Bengal is denoted by an elephant, palm trees and a camel. Persia appears at a distance, bringing silks, drugs and other effects, and with her are to be supposed all the rest of the provinces, which the artist could not describe on the canvas without destroying the whole composition. At a distance is an India man, under sail, laden with treasures of the East. We are talking about a private company, yet the company behaves as if it is sovereign, and that is because it effectively was. However, between 1773 and 1830, six Acts of Parliament hacked away the powers of the company until it became part of the UK government. And when its headquarters building was demolished, this painting was transferred to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And the painting is still in the Foreign Office, where it gives the Foreign Secretary a completely erroneous view of Britain's place in the world. <laughs> so, there's absolutely no shortage of books on the East India Company. Here are the ones that I've used for this talk. John Kerry's book, The Honourable Company, gives us the viewpoint mainly from members of that company. And it's one of the few that doesn't concentrate pretty well solely on India. But perhaps the most well-known one is the very engaging book by William Dalrymple, The Anarchy. He does focus pretty much on the impact on India. Both Kay and Dalrymple, they do try and present a balanced view of the company, both the good and bad. Whereas Shashi Theroux's book, Inglorious Empire, as you can tell from the title, characterises the British subjugation of India as a monstrous crime and that India endured 200 years of systematic looting and any good that we did do was purely by chance. Carter Lavinia's book, The Making of India, acknowledges what we did wrong, but his focus is very much on the good that we did. Nick Robin's book, The Corporation That Changed the World, focuses on the East India Company as a corporation and the social changes that occurred as a result. And then the last two books are very different. Arthur McGregor's book, Company Curiosities, focuses on its contribution to culture and science. And the East India Company at Home explores the impact of the East India Company on Britain as viewed through the country houses and the East India Company families that lived in those houses. A second scene set for you. We will get started eventually, but at the moment it's just scene sets. So built in 1595, the 38-gun Scourge of Malice, what a fantastic name for a privateer ship. And we remember some of the other games of talking privateers, these are crown-sponsored pirates. There's no other word for them. It was built for the Earl of Cumberland as his flagship for raids on the Spanish main. The ship was bought in 1601 by the newly formed Company of Merchants of London trading into the East Indies. And it was wisely renamed. And it was actually renamed as the Red Dragon. In command was the successful Basingstoke-born privateer James Lancaster. In 1601, he led a fleet of four East India Company ships on their first venture to Southeast Asia. At the time, the Dutch and the Portuguese dominated European trade in the East Indies, very roughly the 17,000 islands that comprise modern-day Indonesia. James carried letters from Queen Elizabeth to the local prince of wherever James could find a favourable reception and a trade deal. 
The fleet stopped at Achin in Sumatra and traded a small amount of goods. They went on to Bantam in Java and traded for a small amount of pepper. In both places, the local princes were impressed with the Queen's letter and trade deals were struck. However, the natives had little to offer. So to acquire more goods, James captured a Portuguese ship and stole its cargo of calicoes. The Red Dragon returned to England in 1603, having been away for almost three years. And although the profits were minimal, for getting a couple of insignificant trade deals, James Lancaster was knighted, and it seems rewards for insignificant trade deals seem to be a thing even today. <laughs> On the Red Dragon's third voyage to Asia, there took place the first recorded performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet. In all, the Red Dragon made ten trips to Asia before she was sunk by the Dutch. So this vignette tells us much about the story of the East India Company, the better known name for the Company of Merchants of London trading into the East Indies. And it was also known simply as the Company, and that's the term I shall use just for brevity. So first, we have a huge amount of detailed information about the Company due to extensive contemporary record keeping. Second, it was a private enterprise for the purpose of creating profits. Third, England wasn't the first to spot this opportunity for wealth creation, from spice trade, the Portuguese and the Dutch were way ahead of us. Fourth, trade included a lot of privateering and fighting. We can also note that India was not initially a focus for the company, and that the round-trip journey was often longer than two years. And James being knighted tells us there were rich financial and social prizes to be gained. And lastly, the Hamlet story shows that whilst away these merchant adventurers were intent on enjoying themselves, and usually and predominantly, it must be said, with much baser forms of entertainment. So this talk then covers the 250 years of the East India Company and how it is impacted by and impacts world history. And needless to say, with that scope and time span, the talk will by necessity leave a huge amount out. And before we really get started, some very local context. The Chilworth Gunpowder Mills, large-scale manufacturing of gunpowder was started by the company in Chilworth in 1625. Also not far from us, National Trust Hatchlands. William Sumner purchased Hatchlands in East Clarendon in 1770. He had made his fortune from 23 years in India with the company and he came to England after falling out with Robert Clive. And around 20 National Trust properties were wholly or partly funded through money from the East India Company. And in all, there's 229 landed estates have been catalogued that were purchased by company employees between 1700 and 1850. And the home counties were a popular location, so much so that in the 18th century, Berkshire was nicknamed the English Hindustan. So, to the history of the company then. So the company was primarily a maritime trading company for the exchange of goods between Britain and Asia. I say exchange. Asia didn't want what little England produced, so it was mainly an import business exchanging bullion for goods. And the genesis of the company starts from the Portuguese, who, led by Vasco da Gama, were the first to sail from Europe around the Cape of Good Hope to India. For the first 65 years of the 16th century, the Portuguese were the only European power exploring this new trade route. Spain joined in from, from 1565, but their interest was focused primarily on the Americas. Portugal successfully traded its Asian products in northern Europe, much to the annoyance of the Dutch. However, the Dutch had their hands full fighting the Spanish. In 1580, the King of Spain, Philip II, marries Isabella of Portugal to become the ruler of both Spain and Portugal. And this was the opportunity the Dutch were waiting for. Now Portugal was also the enemy, 
and Portuguese trade was fair game. In 1595, the Dutch sent an exploratory four-ship fleet to Java, and after a number of fights with both the Portuguese and the Javanese, were able to trade or capture enough spices that on their return they made a sizable profit. And in 1598, a number of separately owned fleets set sail to the Spice Islands, returning a year or two later, making a 400% profit. Soon these companies got together to form a single company called the United East India Company, whose initials in Dutch spell VOC, and this is how it is typically known. And by 1599, the Dutch were being so successful they ran out of ships, so they bought English ships to increase the size of their fleet. So none of the foregoing escaped the attentions of Sir Thomas Smythe, member of the Worshipful Company of Haberdashers and Skinners, auditor for the City of London, and treasurer of St Bartholomew's Hospital. A few years earlier, he had helped form the Levant Company as a vehicle for his foreign trading adventures, and as Dalrymple notes, had made a fortune importing currants from the Greek islands and spices from Aleppo. He knew, as did other members of the Levant Company, that increased Dutch trade would quickly cause the collapse of their company. Sir Thomas Smythe organised a meeting to petition the Queen to provide a charter for a trading company for the East Indies. He had the support of a hundred of the wealthiest London merchants and all the necessary stakeholders, the Lord Mayor, senior aldermen and tradespeople. There were also a number of sea captains, some of whom had been successful relieving Spanish galleons of their treasure. And at this time, England was a relatively poor backwater, ostracised from the most powerful Catholic Europe. Spain and Portugal were rich from the cheap South American silver and gold that they were bringing into Europe. So this then was a highly risky venture. The English were late to a party with some pretty large, wealthy guests already at the dining table. Queen Elizabeth prevaricated on providing the charter, eventually issuing it on the last day of 1600. It gave the company freedom from all customs duties for the first six voyages and a British monopoly for 15 years. The area of trade was ill-defined as the East Indies, and the company soon took this to mean everywhere from Cape of Good Hope on the tip of Africa all the way east until the west coast of America. Sir James Lancaster was again given charge of the fleet for the first trading trip under the newly chartered company. This time he managed to bring back all four of his ships and 900 tonnes of pepper, cinnamon and cloves, much of it taken from Portuguese ships, and the profit was 300%. So whilst this was a great success, the Dutch were doing 10 times more business and making 10 times more profit. Initially, the merchant adventurers were paid in a few shares in the voyages they undertook. Later, they were paid a small salary. Neither was enough to provide for a comfortable lifestyle, so private trading was the main source of wealth for the merchant adventurers, and this remained true throughout nearly all the company's history. And one innovation the company did introduce was to change the share capital basis from instead of being linked to just one trip, it was linked to multiple trips, thus spreading the risk. And in time, instead of complex calculations for the profitability of each of these trips, the company created the concept of the shareholder's annual dividend. Now, profitable trading requires at the very least a warehouse where goods could be offloaded from the ships and kept safe and new local goods could be accumulated in readiness for loading onto the ships. These warehouses were called factories. Permission to build a factory had to be obtained from the regional ruler and often required the provision of lavish gifts and over time the scale of these gifts became more and more extravagant. Good sites for factories were hard to come by, as there were many requirements. A good port, good protection from tropical storms, easy access to sources of goods, pepper, cloth, dyes, etc., 
and the willingness of the local leaders to do business. Over time, the warehouses were grown to large distribution centres, which needed defending from competing trading companies, pirates and hostile armies. So you could think of an Amazon warehouse in the centre of Dover Castle. The merchants that managed the factory were called factors, and since the only way the company directors could successfully manage such a large, complex distributed business was with written records, there was a lot of record keeping and a lot of report writing. Which is why the first job for many people starting out in the company was as a writer, and the person in overall charge was called the chief factor. So how did England get its first factory in India? In the Mughal period, Surat was the highest revenue earning city in India. It was the port from which the rich Muslim set sail to visit Mecca, and from where the famed Gujarati cotton was exported from. It's a mile or so inland from the Indian Ocean on a river, providing a safe harbour. And the beach promontory protecting Surat from the sea is called Suvali, misheard and recorded in English as Swaley. The first person to try and establish trading relations with Mughal court was a merchant adventurer and member of the Levant Company, John Mildenhall, who in 1599, knowing of the likely setting up of the East India Company, decided to call on the Mughal Emperor Akbar. He travelled overland from Constantinople to Agra, where in 1603 he gifted the Emperor 29 great horses, which were well received. However, when the Jesuits, who were at court, heard that Mildenhall was seeking to take trade from Portugal, they advised Akbar not to trust Mildenhall, so Mildenhall failed. But as a parting shot, he offered that England would send an ambassador to the Mughal court, something the Portuguese had not done, and this kept the door open for subsequent visits. The next person to try and get a trade deal was Sir William Hawkins, who in 1608 led the first company voyage to India and landed at Surat. He had a letter from James I requesting trading concessions and a gift of 25,000 pieces of gold. He stayed two years, during which time he had his gold stolen and twice narrowly avoided being murdered. He met with the new Emperor Jahangir, and since he and Jahangir both spoke Turkish, he was able to sidestep the Jesuits, but still no deal. In 1612, another company captain, a one Thomas Best, a gruff and terse man with great navigational skills but few social graces, he arrived with another letter from King James. Best had been provided with gifts to appeal to Jahangir's love of culture. This included paintings of Venus and various musical instruments, together with accomplished musicians who could play them, including a cornetist who became a firm favourite and ended up playing in many of the Mughal courts in India. The Mughal Emperor Jahangir was increasingly aware that the English were being more powerful at sea than the Portuguese. Indeed, as well as some Portuguese ships, 15 of his own ships had been forced to trade valuable goods for unwanted English woolen broadcloth. With yet more fine gifts, Jahangir agreed to issue a firman, a sovereign's edict granting rights. Best and his men were told to wait at Suvali while the written firman was produced. Here the board sailors do what board sailors always do when on shore, drink, gamble and hoard. The revelry was interrupted by the arrival of a Portuguese fleet, clearly intent on expelling the English. The Portuguese fleet was far more powerful than the four English galleons and looked certain to win the battle. But Best kept his ships in shallow water, too shallow for the larger Portuguese ships to get close enough to board or set fire to. The battle lasted a couple of days, and Mughal court officials and the Mughal army came out to watch the spectacle. There were no great casualties on either side, but the English clearly had the upper hand, and eventually the Portuguese left. Jahangir was impressed. Captain Best got his firman, a trading agreement which permitted the setting up of a factory at Surat, 
and from this point on, the Mughal emperors looked more favourably on the English than the Portuguese. The Mughal emperor did get, eventually, his English ambassador. Sir Thomas Rowe, England's first ambassador to the Mughal court. Sir Thomas Rowe arrived in 1615 and spent four years at court trying to get a tax-free trade deal. He was unsuccessful, but Jahangir was pleased that after being pestered with three merchant adventurers, which quite frankly he saw as insulting to his status, he was at last recognised as a person of quality by a person directly representing the King of England. In the Foreign Office and in English history books, it's Rowe's embassy to the Mughal court that is seen as marking the turning point in relations between England and India, and hence the start of our success in India. But as we've seen, it was four years of entrepreneurial engagement by company merchant adventurers that really started the relationship. So soon there was a small but rapidly growing trade in indigo, dye and in cottons. And items like cotton tablecloths, bedsheets and dress fabrics started to become popular in England. The English names of the fabrics attest to the company's Asian trade. Chins derives from Hindi, taffeta derives from Persian, gingham from Malay, whilst Kashmir, Calico and Muslim refer to their place of origin, Kashmir, Calcutta and Mosul. So for large parts of the 17th century, everyone was happy. The company made large profits, exporting large quantities of cotton-based fabrics. The Mughals gained much-needed silver and gold to pay for the army and the Hindu workers earned a reasonable living manufacturing the cotton fabrics. But in the early days of the 17th century, the East India Company still expected its main revenue earner would be spices from the Spice Islands. And the company had high hopes for profitable spice trade from the Indonesian island of Ambon, then famed for its nutmeg and cloves. The Dutch VOC had successfully kicked out the Portuguese and had a factory on the island, as did the company. A few years before, the Dutch and the English had signed a treaty promising to be nice to each other. However, in 1623, the local Dutch chief factor thought the English were spying on his business and bad-mouthing the Dutch to the local tribal chief. Under torture, waterboarding was a favour, the accused spy confessed. As a result, the Dutch executed 21 traders, including 10 East India Company men. This was a turning point for the company, getting out of the Spice Islands trade and concentrating instead on its Indian trade in cotton textiles and indigo. It was also a trigger for the First Anglo-Dutch War. Let me introduce to you the type of person that joined the company and introduce some more terms that we need to know. Thomas Pitt was the son of a Dorset reverend and eventually father and grandfather of British Prime Ministers. He went to India with the company, decided trading for himself was a much more profitable idea, so he became an interloper, someone who traded illegally in the East Indies. On return to England, he was fined £1,000 for illegal trading, but due to the wealth he had made, this was small change to him. He bought himself the rotten borough of Old Serum and became an MP. He returned to India and was hired by the company as president of Madras, a job he did well for 10 years. Some factories grew large and took control over a number of smaller factories in the region, and the men that ran these factories were called presidents. Just an example of some of the challenges these presidents faced, in 1716, one president was forced to return to Britain for failing to handle a conflict between two castes in Madras, one that supported left-handed idols and the other right-handed idols. He is also known as Diamond Pitt for acquiring and selling a 410-carat diamond, making a £100,000 profit in the process. He retired and died at his 300-acre property, Swallowfield Park in Berkshire. The salaries paid to these company officials were tiny. For a writer, it was £5 a year, not enough even with the allowances for them to live on comfortably. 
and even a president only earned £200 a year. Thus, every employee conducted some form of private trading. And this was normally within the East Indies rather than between the East Indies and London. And it was called country trading. Country trading, if it didn't interfere with the company business, was tolerated by the company. Over time, those company men who focused primarily on trading on their own behalf and got incredibly rich came back to Britain to flaunt their wealth, and they were called nabobs. And on board ship, the ship's captain was, of course, in overall command. However, the next most senior person on these trading ships was the supercargo. He was responsible for the cargo, selling it once in port and buying and receiving goods for the return journey. Colin Campbell was a supercargo for the Swedish East India Company. His family were relatively well off and well connected in Edinburgh. However, he had invested in the South Sea Company and when that collapsed he went into debt and had to flee. He fled to Ostend, then part of Austria, and helped them set up an Austrian East Indies company. The Austrians were not successful, so he moved to Sweden, which already had a large Scottish merchant population. Here he became a director of the Swedish East India Company, for which he had to become a Swedish citizen. In fact, he became a noble, and he adopted the motto, Remember it is God that fills the sails. He became a supercargo for them, with three assistant supercargoes working for him, all with British names. And it does seem in those days it was just so easy to move around Europe and get jobs in different countries. If only there was some way we could do the same today. <laughs> the 17th century was a great time to do business with India. The Mughal Empire was at its strongest, ruling over most of North and Central India. In 1605, when Akbar the Great, perhaps the greatest Mughal ruler, had just died. The Mughals would continue to be successful, powerful rulers for another hundred years until 1707, when the ruler Aurangzeb died. During this period, the Mughal Empire produced around a quarter of the world's products, and together with China, was the richest and most powerful nation on earth. So establishing and maintaining long-distance trade is not easy, and the 17th century saw many hiccups. At sea, scurvy, storms and shipwrecks took their toll. Pirates and privateers took their cargo. Hostile natives and uncooperative rulers stopped their trade. Private trade by their employees took their profits. The failure of monsoons and devastating floods took away livelihoods, and famine and epidemics took away lives. But in the 17th century, the closest the East India Company came to folding was due to the English Civil War. The company operated by royal charter. No royalty, no charter. So in 1649, a free-for-all started in the East Indies trade. This infighting not only disrupted trade, but soon the local rulers who had permitted the English to trade got fed up with the anarchy and started expelling the English. Profits and tax receipts from trade plummeted, and to force Cromwell's hand, the directors of the company declared for liquidation. Cromwell disliked the company, both because of its royal patronage and because it was a monopoly. He was forced to reinstate the charter to create stability and protect England's revenues. Charles II reissued the charter and made the stock permanent, thus ensuring continuity of capital. Charles also included explicit permission for the company to fortify and colonise any of its settlements and to transport to them stores, ammunition and indeed settlers. And in the long run, what made the company successful was that it had both royal and parliamentary patronage, what was independent of both. But it wasn't plain sailing. During the 17th century, the company established three cities that would become three of the largest cities in India. Bombay on the west coast, Calcutta in the northeast in Bengal, and Madras in the southeast. Calcutta and Madras were established on the whim of a merchant adventurer. Bombay was gifted. Bombay was acquired from the Mughals in the 16th century by the Portuguese, 
who had built it up into a fortified centre for Catholic religious orders. When Charles II of England married Catherine of Braganza, daughter of King John IV of Portugal, Bombay came as part of her dowry. A secret clause in the gifting stated that Charles must use it for the defence of Portugal's other Indian settlements. This was not Charles's plan at all. He had great expectations for the company taking more business from the Portuguese, and he didn't want to have to defend them against an increasingly strong Dutch VOC. So Charles hit upon, as they say, a cunning plan. The company was not interested in holding land. They anticipated lots of problems and responsibilities in owning large tracts of land. However, the company were in negotiation with Charles over the re-establishment of their charter, and when Charles insisted they lease Bombay from him, they couldn't refuse. So in 1668, the company acquired the first piece of Indian soil that wasn't for the purpose of supporting a factory. They didn't want it, it was forced upon them. Sir John Charles, the first governor of Bombay, in the 20 years that he ran it, turned it from a trading backwater to a major trading centre with a population of 60,000, and it became the first seat of power for the company in India. And part of the attraction of Bombay for the company is their employees for the first time in India could own a piece of British soil and build their own house. One thing that the company excelled at was making the best of a bad situation. They had lots of practice. The second city was Madras, and it was selected as a factory site by Agent Francis Day, who was the chief of the Masuli Patnam factory further north on the Coromandel coast. He chose the site because he could obtain cheap cotton here and the local rulers were friendly and gave him land for the factory. The fact that it was on a windswept beach with no natural harbour and impossible for ships to dock does not seem to have worried him. Every few years the company would lose ships as they smashed against the beach in the storms. The factory was established in 1640 and it turned out to be a good location for sourcing saltpetre for the gunpowder mills of Chilworth. And today, Calcutta, the capital of the Indian state in West Bengal, is regarded as the cultural capital of India, and from 1805 to 1911 was effectively the capital of India under British rule. Its origins go back to two men, Sir Joshua Child, the unscrupulous chairman of the company, based in London, and the local chief factor, Job Sherlock. For the seven years he was chairman, Josiah bribed King Charles II with an annual gift of 10,000 guineas, so that the company maintained its monopolistic advantages. He also manipulated stock prices. He would arrange for letters to be sent from India, announcing some catastrophe, such as the loss of a ship or insurrection. And when the letter was received in London, the stock price would naturally fall, and Josiah would buy up more shares, knowing the information was false, and the share price would bounce back. The factors in Bengal were increasingly complaining of increased tax levels. King Charles was seeing success in the Americas with the English as landowners, and was much in favour of trying the same approach in India. Charles, an imperialist, supported King Charles's wish and declared war on the mighty Emperor Aurangzeb. The King supported this initiative with 19 warships and 600 soldiers. Nick Robbins delightfully describes Charles' business strategy as corruption at home, aggression abroad. The company's factory in Bengal was in a town called Hooghly on the Hooghly River, 20 miles north of modern-day Calcutta. The local chief factor, Job Sharnock, an old and hugely experienced man, was the most successful of the company factors. He was a wheeler dealer and he kept good relationships with all the local traders and was liked by the directors in London. With no understanding of the size of the country or the scale of the challenge, Charles sent Job Sharnock 308 soldiers for his invasion force to confront the local Norwabs of 40,000 soldiers. Job was instructed to evacuate Hooghly and take the troops to a place called Chittagong, where Charles planned to start his conquest of Bengal. 
Only a third of the number of promised soldiers arrived, and Job used this as an excuse to not start the war. He abandoned Hooghly, but went only 20 miles downriver to a mud ridge on a bend in the river to start a new factory near a village called Caligat, which would eventually give its name to a new town of Calcutta. Under orders from Josiah, they abandoned this new site and eventually ended up back in Madras. Meanwhile, Josiah's forces in Bombay had been easily defeated by Aurangzeb, who in revenge took control of, plundered and closed the company's factories. The company had to sue for peace and request a pardon, an event gleefully captured by French historians. The two English peace envoys, hands tied behind their back, prostrating themselves in front of the emperor. They had to agree to pay a large war indemnity and restore all plundered goods and ships. A few years later, from this humiliating apology, Aurangzeb permitted the English to trade again, and Job Sharnak and the factors were able to return to Calcutta and start building a new factory. So the story I've just shared is typical of the history of the company. It's very much part of the cock up and make the best of a bad job school of history, and the company had so much practice at this they rather excelled, much more so than any other nation. As we've heard, the Swedes, the Danes, the Austrians, as well as the Dutch, the Portuguese and the French all tried to make a success of trade in the East Indies, but it was the English that triumphed. By the end of the 17th century, the English East India Company had opened 20 factories, mostly around India, Sumatra, Indonesia, but also one in Japan. In contrast to the turmoil of the 17th century, the period up to 1760 saw a steady growth of company business and no major calamities. In the second half of the 18th century, on average, the company was making 16 voyages a year, mostly to India, but also to the Red Sea, Sumatra and the South China Seas. Survival rates had also increased, with 94% of the ships making it home. Doesn't sound too bad until you consider, would you take an aeroplane flight where six in every 100 crashed? (laughs) Two events happened in 1707, which whilst taking many years to have an impact, were a turning point in the nature and the business of the company. The first was the death of Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb, widely accepted as the last great ruler of the Mughal Empire. From his death, the Mughal Empire started to fracture and decline. It was this division that the company would so proficiently exploit, but it was the French that would show the way. The second was the act of political union between Scotland and England. Scotland was late in setting up a company to generate wealth from long-distance trade, finally doing so in 1695, almost 100 years later than England. The company was called the Company of Scotland Trading to Africa and the Indies, but in fact it included the Americas as well. Between 1698 and 1700, 10 ships with over 3,700 people on board set sail. Most went to Panama to start a colony there, while others went to Java and China. All ended in tragedy, for the familiar reasons of poor planning, hostilities from incumbent Western powers and disease. Scotland had spent approximately 25% of its available cash on these ventures, and the failure of the Scottish company practically bankrupt the country. Bankruptcy and a seven-year famine in Scotland were the key reasons why Scotland agreed to the 1707 Act of Parliamentary Union. Influential Scottish merchants had also been lobbying for access to the English East India Company. And as a measure of just how much enthusiasm there was for trade with the East India Company, before long, although Scotland only made up 9% of the population of the Union, they made up 25% of those employed by the now British East India Company. And the wealth these employees brought back to Scotland quashed post-Union talks of separatism. Being on the eastern seaboard, Dundee was one of the cities that benefited greatly from the trade with India, becoming the largest manufacturer of jute in the world in the 19th century. 
Shashish Theroux, a writer on the East India Company, says mischievously about Scotland today, with India gone, it's no wonder the Scottish bonds with England are loosening. Why were there so many Scots? Patronage, they were very good at this, and probably also they had less opportunities at home compared to London, and there were eventually as many as 2,000 Scottish nabobs. I introduced to you Thomas Pitt early on, he of the Pitt Diamond. He was the governor of Madras and he realised that with this Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb gone, it may at last be possible to secure this really wide-ranging, tax-free firman that they wanted. I also mentioned that the scale of gift-taking got a little bit out of hand. Pitt's gifts to the Mughal Emperor Farooq Siyar, who was then the emperor, it took 160 bullock carts to carry the 40 tonnes of presents and it required 600 soldiers to guard the journey from Madras to Delhi. And it still took a year of pleading, bribing and threats of withdrawal of company business before eventually in 1717 the emperor granted the free trade agreement. You can't get a free trade agreement quickly, we all know that. <laughs> this was the trade deal that Captain Hawkins, Sir Thomas Rowe and Sir William Norris had all tried to get over the last 100 years. In return for an annual payment of 3,000 rupees, the company could trade freely without taxes. There was huge celebration in all the company presidencies in Madras, Surat and Bombay. This gave the company significant trading advantages over all the rival countries. However, Farooq Siyah, he was deposed within a year, dead within two, and his successor killed two years later. This was the new normal for the Mughal emperors. Given this turmoil in India, for the next 20 years, the company would spend much effort enforcing the terms of this agreement. So while the company was focused on trading, other rulers had noted the Mughal's weakness. In 1739, Persian Nadir Shah, who modelled himself on Genghis Khan, sacked Delhi, taking the peacock throne and all the treasury, including the Kohinoor diamond. The booty was loaded onto 700 elephants, 4,000 camels and 12,000 horses. The plunder seized from India enabled Nadir to stop taxes in Iran for a period of three years. It also bankrupt the Mughals, who can no longer fund their armies. And in the 1740s, 50s and 60s, the Afghan king, Ahmed Shah Durrani, invaded India, destroying, looting and conquering. The French had also noted this weakness. The French made a number of attempts to set up an East India company, but always struggled to make the trade profitable. They'd established factories in India at Surat and at Pondicherry. One of their more aggressive merchant adventurers was Joseph Duplay. Joseph Duplay, since the age of 18, had been a French trader. He was clever with great business acumen and brought much wealth to the company and even more to himself. And he rose to become Governor General for all of France's Indian possessions. Between 1744 and 48 is what historians call the War of the Austrian Succession, with Britain and France on opposing sides. Britain sent a small Royal Navy fleet to the East Indies to protect British interests. Off the coast of Indonesia, they came across a large French Indiaman fully laden with goods from China. They relieved the French of its cargo and sold it for a small fortune in Jakarta. Duplay had a very sizable interest in this cargo, and with both his national pride and his wallet damaged, he was not a happy man. The English Madras factory and the French Pondicherry factory were just 100 miles apart, and when a French war fleet of nine ships and 1,200 soldiers arrived at Pondicherry, they quickly overpowered the poorly defended British factory. 
A local Mughal prince who supported the company brought his 10,000 men to attack the French. However, they were no match for the well-trained, well-armed French army who quickly defeated the Mughals. The outcome of this battle was a revelation for the French, the English and the Mughals as to the supremacy of European armies. And in Madras, witnessing these events was a 21-year-old company writer named Robert Clive. Clive had grown up in Shropshire and was always unruly. He was the school bully and led the village gang of hoodlum teenagers. His parents, unable to control him, sent him to live with his uncle, who also despaired of him. Eventually, his father was able to get rid of him, so he'd get him a job with the company. <laughs> Duplay had changed the rules of the game. Instead of working with the existing Indian political leaders, he overthrew them. By 1750, both the Carnatic and Hyderabad were ruled by French puppets, and Madras was isolated from the Indian interior. Muhammad Ali, Norwab of the Carnatic, was one of the last princes still loyal to the company, but he was being usurped by a local warlord, Chandra Sahib, a long-time ally of the French. Newly commissioned captain, Robert Clive, was sent with a small force to lay siege to Chandra Sahib's headquarters at Arcot, where against all the odds, he was successful. Clive was now famous, receiving praise from Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder and from the company. I really wish I had time to talk about a few women that we know about. Here's just one, one, one snippet. Before this event, a young lady, Margaret Maskelyne, had left England for Madras specifically to court Robert Clive, and she was quickly successful. So Clive returned to England with his new bride and stood for Parliament, but he failed to get elected and in 1755 returned again to India, this time as Lieutenant Colonel in the British Army. Repayment of debts by the Norwabs for military assistance was often in the form of land, and it quickly became apparent that land taxes and custom duties made a considerable contribution to the revenues of the companies. The hope was that these revenues would pay for the armies required to support them, and hence not be a drain on their commercial profitability. But this isn't always how it turned out. At this time, the 1750s, France was the largest European landowner in India, owning all of Hyderabad state, and the Carnatic. Just about to hit India was the war between France and Britain for global dominance, called the Seven Years' War. However, before then, there were more urgent matters for the company to deal with. The new Norab of Bengal was a very unsavoury character and widely disliked. He would, for example, have ferry boats sunk just so he could watch the passengers drown. So when in mid-1756 reports arrived that he had taken Calcutta and many British had died horribly, the reports caused great alarm. This event became later known as the Black Hole of Calcutta. Most narratives of the event are based on John Holwell's account. He was an Irish doctor and was locked up in the cell. He is the only one who wrote an account, and the account shows him in a particularly good light, and on the back of which he became governor of Calcutta. He claimed 146 prisoners of war were kept overnight in this cell, and 123 died. More modern scholarship argues that army records show that only 43 soldiers were unaccounted for at the time, and the maximum number of people in the cell was less than 70, and 43 died. Clive was sent to Calcutta to regain control, which he quickly did, with support from the Royal Navy. And along with Clive was Robert Orme, a member of the Madras Council, and Robert was Clive's partner in their private trade, and Robert was writing a history book about the British in Hindustan. His book would rely on Clive's first-hand testimony of his military engagements. This did two things. First, it gave Clive a sense of his place in history, 
and secondly, it helped to position Clive positively for posterity. Seeing the effectiveness of Clive, the Jagat Seths, the bankers to the Mughals, and probably the most wealthy people on the planet, wanted rid of their Norwalk and offered the company and Clive huge sums of money if they would get rid of him. Clive's orders, however, were to go and engage the French, but going against his orders, he agreed. And in doing so, he secured for the company land rights, tax-free trading, and around a million pounds. And he also secured, just for himself, another million. The showdown was the Battle of Plassey. The Battle of Plassey is seen by many historians as the turning point, marking the end of the East India Company as primarily a trading body in India and the start of the creation of the British Empire. Whilst there was a set-piece military battle, it was the behind-the-scenes negotiations and bribes that caused the Norwab's troops to run away that won the battle for Clive and the company. And with their man, Mir Jafar, now Norwab, Clive got his share of the mercenary fees. He spent a small part of it on a grand house in Barclay Square and 10 square miles of rural Shropshire. Such deals were not illegal, but the sheer scale of Clive's share attracted much criticism, and in subsequent parliamentary inquiry into Clive's greed, Clive remarked with a well-reported phrase that he could not but marvel at his own moderation. <laughs> Clive so weakened Mir Shafar's position that he frequently had to call on Clive to defeat usurpers and disobedient princes. Each time Clive offered support, he expected payment. After one such engagement, Mir Jafar conferred on Clive the title Jagir, equivalent to Duke, and awarded land and £23,000 per year for life. The land awarded to Clive included land that had been ceded to the East India Company, so Clive effectively became the company's landlord in Bengal, and the company therefore had to pay Clive rent. Clive also negotiated not only should company trade be free of tax, but private trade should be as well. By taking land revenue and tax revenue and trade revenues away from the Norwab, he effectively further bankrupted the Mughal rulers. As well as titles and rewards in India, Clive was made governor and president of Bengal by the company. Clive's ambitions as military ruler of India required a large permanent army and expensive fortifications, and he requested these from the directors in London. And John Kay records their reply. You seem so thoroughly possessed with military ideas as to forget your employers are merchants and trade their principal object. And were we to accept your several plans for fortifying Calcutta, half our capital would be buried in stone walls. I think that's a no. <laughs> Shortly after writing this letter, Clive returned to England. He had no fondness for India or for the Indian people. Clive's greatest crime, however, in the eyes of the directors, was the failure to keep accurate records. Their ability to govern depended on records, and Clive was not interested in bookkeeping. The company's business was starting to become unprofitable, as expenses were being remitted to the company, whilst revenues were siphoned off for private benefit. Who would have thought that records management and archiving confidential information could be such an emotive topic? Back in Britain, there was increasing concern for the level of personal gifts and wealth that the nabobs were making. For the directors, this was not only a moral issue, but also a financial issue, as it was company profits that were being given away. Fierce debates, share manipulations and bribes took place as opposing factions sought to win the crucial shareholder votes for the election of directors. In 1763, Clive and his allies lost out in this power struggle, and the Jagir, with its £23,000 annual income, was taken away from Clive. This was Clive's most precious award being unique, and it placed him in Mughal society as more important than the company. 
Meanwhile in Bengal, the new Governor-General engineered to replace Mir Jafar with his son, Mir Kasim, who he thought would make more revenue for the company. He thought wrongly. Mir Kasim disliked being treated as a puppet. Mir Kasim decided there was so much abuse by the company of their tax exemptions that it now no longer raised any revenue at all, so he cancelled the tax altogether. This took away the company's financial advantage and triggered a war between the company and Mir Kasim. When news of this crisis reached London, the directors took the action they always took in such circumstances, replaced the top man, the Governor-General. The question was with whom? A Clive supporter proposed, to widespread support, the proven troubleshooter, Clive. Clive said he would reluctantly go as long as his jagir, his title and his £23,000 a year, were restored to him. And we can tell what a pickle the directors were in, for in the same meeting they passed two resolutions, one forbidding any company employee from accepting gifts, and the second approving the gift of the jagir to Clive. <laughs> Honour restored, Clive graciously set sail for Bengal for the last time. Clive was instructed to stamp out all those perks he had previously enjoyed. By the time Clive had arrived, the company had won the war with Mir Kasim and peace had been restored. But ever the opportunist, Clive wrote to the directors saying, the whole Mughal empire was now in the reach of the company, if only the directors had the courage to press forward their advantage. Clive also promised that, I will return to England without having acquired one farthing addition to my fortune. He also wrote a second secret letter to his agent in London to borrow whatever money he could and use all Clive's cash to buy as much company stock as possible. At this time the stock was still depressed because London thought there was a war raging. So there was no crisis for Clive to sort out, just the agreeing the terms of the peace treaty, making Shah Alam a puppet emperor. And such was the impoverished state of the Mughals that there was no proper throne available for the coronation. So Clive constructed a throne by having an armchair placed on Clive's dining table and clothed with a luxury cloth. As agreed, Shah Alam then handed over the Diwani of Bengal. The Diwani was the right to manage all of the province's revenues, including taxes. The actual ceremony took place in Clive's tent and took less time than buying a goat in the market. Clive, in praising his own achievements, writing back to the directors, said that after all costs and expenses had been paid for, he foresaw nearly £2 million of increased revenue for the company, enough to pay for the company's army and still leave a huge profit. Like all politicians promising jam tomorrow, he was hopelessly optimistic. But his letter had the desired effect. The company's stock price soared. Over a period of eight months, the price doubled. Anyone who had the foresight to buy shares would indeed be most fortunate. Some historians favour the signing of this treaty, the Treaty of Ahalabad, as the start of British rule in India, pre-rating the Raj by 40 years. And when shares behave in this spectacular way, we all know what will happen. Everyone wanted company shares. In Paris, Amsterdam and London, the share price kept increasing. And to keep the momentum going, the shareholders voted to increase their dividend from 6% to 10%. Westminster had other ideas, a windfall tax, to plug the gap left by the Seven Years' War with France. In protracted negotiations, the government agreed to extend the charge of the company. They agreed to Clive Chagir could continue for another 10 years, and in return, the company would pay the government £400,000 a year. However, in 1769, the monsoons failed in Bengal, leading to between 5% and 50% of the population dying of hunger, between 3 and 5 million people. Some historians claim that the company failed to make any mitigation, 
Others point out the instructions were issued for the building of storehouses, for six rice distribution centres to provide free grain and for financial hardship packages, but it was too little and too late. And to compound the misery, local company officials increased revenue targets to try and make up the shortfalls in revenue from silk and cotton. The famine wasn't the company's fault. There had always been regular famines, but the company could and should have done more, not just for humanitarian reasons, but also out of self-interest. With the workforce dead, there was no business. The company had been living on credit. The revenues Clive predicted hadn't materialised, and the increased dividends and the £400,000 annual payment to the government greatly exceeded their revenues. The company was going broke, and in 1772 it asked the government for a £1 million loan. The share price plummeted and the government were forced to step in to prevent a financial meltdown. The hurriedly put together regulating bill of 1773 started the process of the government taking over control of the company. One measure was the putting in place of the Government Oversight Council in Calcutta. So from 1773, all important decisions by the company had to be approved by the government. The final section of the regulating bill allowed the company to claim back customs taxes on tea imported to Britain and then immediately exported again. More than half the tea being drunk in Britain was being smuggled in by continental competitors, especially the Dutch, who paid no tax, whilst the company tea incurred a tax of 25% and was consequently sitting in warehouses unsold. The unsold tea was to be dumped on the American market and would be charged an import tax to compensate for this missing revenue. The fact of the British government reforms charging American tax on tea, and especially when there was no tax on tea imported from Holland, provoked the famous Boston Tea Party. The Americans had seen what the East India Company had done to India, and they feared the same would happen to them. Three years later, in 1776, America declared independence, and seven years later after that, after the American War of Independence, in 1783, Britain recognised the new country of America. The year before, 1782, Britain had lost Menorca to Spain. The year before that, Britain lost Tobago to France. The following year, 1784, it looked like Britain would lose India. It looked as if the British Empire was falling apart. With wars in India, with the Bengal famine, with the near bankruptcy of the company, Parliament needed someone to blame. The unfortunate scapegoat was Warren Hastings. Warren Hastings and Robert Clive are the two people most often credited with creating the foundations for the British Empire in India. Clive through conquest, corruption and plunder, Warren Hastings through administration and diplomacy. Warren's father was a poor gentleman farmer whose family had lost out supporting Charles I. Warren joined the company at age 18 and was sent out to Calcutta. Clive was impressed with Warren and made him British resident for Bengal. Naturally sympathetic to the Indians, Warren acted as a mediator with the Mughal rulers and was responsible for investigating the widespread trading abuses conducted by company officials. He tried to get the council to outlaw these abuses, but too many of the council members benefited from them and they didn't have Clive's support. Warren felt the abuses were morally, economically and reputationally wrong. Unable to get his ideas accepted, he resigned and returned to London. Unlike his contemporaries, he hadn't made a fortune in India and he soon found himself short of money. So he reapplied to the company and was appointed deputy ruler of the city of Madras. Here he was able to make trading reforms which improved both relations with the Indians and improved company finances. And in 1771, he was appointed as governor of Calcutta, the most important of the presidencies, in order to deal with the aftermath of the Bengal famine. After the death of Mughal ruler Aurangzeb, three new powers emerged in India. The most powerful were the Marathas. This was a confederacy of Hindu people. 
The newest power was the Mysore Sultanate, ruled by the military brilliant Islamic Sultan Haider Ali, and then by his equally effective son, Tipu Sultan. And the third grouping were the Islamic-ruled but Hindu-governed Nizams of Hyderabad. Over the 30 years since Duplay had so devastated the Mughal army, these Indian powers had learned the lessons of the supremacy of Western weapons and fighting techniques, and had imported French officers and arms to modernise their armies. They were now better equipped and better trained than many in the company army, and intent of ridding India of the British. By standing united and with French support, they could defeat the British. This was the welcome awaiting Warren Hastings when he arrived back in India. Hastings managed to break the coalition and by taking control of the French ports prevented the French navy from landing and providing support. With the military threat under control, Hastings turned to restructuring the company as an administrative service. This is how Dalrymple writes about his achievements. Hastings worked with extraordinary energy. He unified currency systems, he ordered the codification of Hindu laws and digests of Muslim law books. He reformed the tax and customs systems, fixed land revenue and stopped the worst oppressions being carried out on behalf of private traders by the local agents. He created an efficient postal service, backed a proper cartographic survey of India and built a series of public granaries, including the great Gola at Patna, to make sure the famine of 1770-71 was never repeated. Underlying all Hastings' work was a deep respect for the land he had lived in since his teens. Hastings generally liked India and the Indians, and by the time he became governor, spoke not only good Bengali and Urdu, but also fluent court and literary Persian. However, one member of the overseeing council put in place by the government, a Philip Francis, took a dislike to Hastings and did his best to undermine him, and made life so difficult for Hastings that at one point they ended up having a duel. Philip's view of the native Bengalis was diametrically opposed to Hastings. Philip's called them ignorant and unimproved, he also wanted to be governor. Sadly, Philip Francis was able to convince the directors of Hastings' supposed incompetence and anti-company behaviour, and they eventually recalled him to London. In London, Clive had done so much to advance Hastings' career, was becoming increasingly embittered that he wasn't being recognised, fated and applauded enough, and he used his own influence to try and do down many who he had previously supported. This included Warren Hastings. I can't think which politician Clive reminds me of today. Cartoon shows Hastings astride a horse, dressed in Indian garb, being at attacked by two of his main accusers, Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox. He is defending himself with a shield of honour and a saddlebags are what he has brought back for Britain. Deeds of the territories he's acquired, the saving of the company and jewels for the British Crown and millions of pounds of revenue for the government. The government agreed to impeachment hearings in Westminster Hall, with the House of Commons and House of Lords attending. The British public were initially captivated by the trial as Edmund Burke made the case for the vileness of Hastings' crimes and of Hastings as a person. As the trial dragged on for seven long years, the public lost interest, and as more and more evidence surfaced, it became apparent that Hastings was indeed the saviour of India. The trial took so long that a third of the lords who were there at the start had died by the time they were asked for a verdict. <laughs> Robert Clive saw none of this as sick and embittered and blamed for the Bengal famine. He committed suicide in 1774. The government replaced Hastings with General Lord Charles Cornwallis, known for his incorruptibility. It was Cornwallis who had handed over the 13 American colonies to George Washington. His brief was clear, make sure the same didn't happen in India. Notionally, the company was still the power in India, but it was government who were now firmly in charge. 
In many ways, the change from Warren Hastings to Cornwallis in 1786 marks the transition of the company in India from a self-governed trading company to an extension of the British government. And from the British government and the company perspectives, Cornwallis was an exemplary governor as he continued the period of stability and growth started by Hastings. But his humiliating time in America, where Britain had lost America, not to Native Americans, but to British settlers, made him extremely wary of company employees going native. This led him to introduce the racist policies that would eventually underpin the British Raj. When Cornwallis took over governorship, one in three British men had Indian wives or were cohabiting with Indian women. Cornwallis banned the children of such relationships from working for the company, and a century later, Anglo-Indians were mainly found as minor clerks, postmen and train drivers. This racist attitude was underpinned by an assumption of British superiority, leading to abuse of the Indians. Senior British figures who had served under Hastings voiced their concerns, but to no avail. And before we get to the final chapter of the company, we need to just catch up with what else the company is up to in the rest of the East Indies. In the rest of Southeast Asia, it was business as usual, seeking out new lands and new trading ventures. Private traders already knew of a very profitable three-way trade, Indian cottons and opium to Southeast Asia, in exchange for metals and the exotic culinary animals that seemed to make up the Chinese diet, and then to China to exchange for silks, ceramics, and later tea, which could be sold for high profit in India and Europe, and would become the company's dominant product. Burma was popular for its rubies, a dye called lac, and the finest shipbuilding timber, Burmese teak. Sumatra was famed for its pepper, and the Philippines was a source of silver bought by the Spanish from Mexico, which could be traded for Indian cloths. But right from the beginning of the company's time in Asia, China was always known to be the source of tremendous wealth and potential profitable trade. But the Chinese wouldn't allow factories on Chinese soil. Spain was successfully trading with China from Manila in the Philippines, Portugal from Macau, and the Dutch from Taiwan. Following the Glorious Revolution, the Dutch overextended themselves militarily, and after the Nine Years' War with France, were pretty well bankrupt and ceased to be a major competitor. The company was servicing China from Madras, a long journey making it difficult to react quickly and dependent on seasonal winds. A base close to China was sorely needed. The company did try to set up factories in many places around South China seas, including islands off Vietnam and Borneo, but without success. And in the 19th century, the company governor of the Benkulin factory on Sumatra had his own recommendation. His name was Thomas Stanford Raffles, and his wild idea was Singapore. In 1786, the company leased Penang Island from the Sultan of Kedah and renamed it Prince of Wales Island. Further land was leased to provide food supplies, and after a visit by Colonel Arthur Wellesley, the later Duke of Wellington, this land was named Province Wellesley. Penang thus became the company's fourth presidency, with a similar infrastructure to equal Madras and Bombay. You could say Raffles was born to trade. He was born on a merchant vessel off Jamaica, and at the age of 14 started work as a clerk in the company. Ten years later, at age 24, he was sent to Prince of Wales Island as Assistant Secretary. In 1811, Napoleon annexed Holland, creating the Kingdom of Holland, and Raffles was sent as part of a military expedition to take Java and remove the French and the Dutch. Duly done, Raffles was appointed Lieutenant Governor of the Dutch East Indies and set about making reforms. A subsequent treaty handed the islands back to the Dutch, and as a consolation prize, Raffles was sent to the rather sleepy company factory at Ben Coolin. In 1818, he went back to the Malay Peninsula to work with the British resident of Malacca, Scotsman William Farquhar, who shared Raffles' view that they needed to find somewhere closer to China. 
Farquhar Raffles settled on the island at the end of the Malaysian Peninsula known as Singapore. The Dutch already had agreement with the king for their exclusive ownership of the island, but Farquhar and Raffles ignored this. They agreed a local treaty and immediately set up a military fort. They banked on the fact that whilst this would certainly cause a diplomatic incident, which it did, the Dutch would not attack, which they didn't. And the East India Company now owned Singapore. They made it a free port to attract trade and to undercut the Dutch. So how best can we describe the company at the start of the 19th century? The historian Professor Parkinson in his book Trade in the Eastern Seas provide this helpful and rather delightful Q&A about the company at around 1800. How was the East India Company controlled? By the government. What was its object? To collect taxes. How was its object obtained? By means of a large standing army. What were its employees? Soldiers mostly, the rest civil servants. Where did it trade to? China. And what did it export from England? Courage. <laughs> and what did it import from China? Tea. <laughs> At the start of the 19th century, the only commercial activity the company was allowed was trade with China. And in 1813, when its charter again came up for renewal, it lost its monopoly. And to reinforce Professor Parkinson's characterisation of the company, let me introduce Scotsman Charles Grant. Charles, at the age of 21, joined the company as a soldier and rose quickly through the ranks. He also ran a silk manufacturing business in Bengal, which made him rich, and he returned to Britain aged 44. Two of his children died of smallpox, prompting a religious conversion, and he became an evangelical Christian. He became MP and joined the board of directors of the company, becoming its chairman a year later. In this capacity, he was the man most responsible for the founding of Halebury College in Hertfordshire, for the education of company civil servants for India. Prior to the opening of the college in 1806, getting a job in the company was largely through patronage. After it was established, it increasingly became a meritocracy. A job in the company was well paid and seen as a job for life, so there was high demand and consequently high standards. Students learned Sanskrit and Hindustani, and the school motto was, pursuit of knowledge better than pursuit of gold. Students were taught that their job wasn't for generating great personal wealth, but in compensation they would be the highest paid civil servants in the world. Private trading was outlawed, and the current modern civil service grew out of this college. After Cornwallis, as Governor General came Richard Wellesley, and like Cornwallis, he was a government man and his aspirations were imperial, not trade. If it was Cornwallis that marked the cultural transition of the company to the future Raj, it was Richard Wellesley and his younger brother Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, that changed the company from ruling Bengal to ruling India. Dalrymple notes that Wellesley conquered more land more quickly than Napoleon did in Europe, and many of these military victories were achieved through diplomacy, financial inducements and smart strategy with relatively little loss of life. The powerful and vindictive Tibu Sultan, however, was a different matter. He had three inconclusive wars with the company and was even more passionate about getting the British out of India. Wellesley, with support from Prime Minister Pitt, was equally passionate about getting the French out of India. So right from the start, war was inevitable, not just with the Tipu Sultan, but with all the princes supported by the French. Tipu had sent an embassy to Napoleon Bonaparte requesting an invasion force. This was already part of Napoleon's plans. He always saw Egypt as the route to India. Dalrymple quotes from a letter from Napoleon to Tipu Sultan. You have already been informed of my arrival on the borders of the Red Sea with an innumerable and invincible army, full of the desire of releasing and relieving you from the iron yoke of England. May the Almighty increase your power and destroy your enemies. Wellesley knew that the French had a navy on the way, so took proactive action against Tipu. And to give some sense of the scale of the impending battle, 
Wellesley's logistics for the battle of Seringapatam included 30,000 sheep and 100,000 bullocks carrying equipment. Tipu's men fought fearlessly but were totally outnumbered and defeat in the final assault was quick. Tipu was killed as were some 10,000 of his men. Allied deaths were around 350. The military's prize committee, whose job was to manage the distribution of treasures, was staggered by the richness of the goods in Tipu Sultan's palace. Bullion, gold plate, jewellery and silks of such quality and quantity they had never been seen before. A few years later, Clive's daughter-in-law Henrietta, Countess of Powys, made a pleasure trip to South Asia where she bought as many of the treasures she could from the soldiers that had looted Tipu's palace. Thus, in Paris Castle exists one of the finest collections of Hindu Islamic art anywhere in the world. Tipu was the most powerful Indian ruler in India. With him gone, the fall of the rest of India was inevitable. It wasn't all easy. Arthur Wellesley later in life noted that the Battle of Assay against the Marathas was the hardest battle he ever fought and altogether tougher than his battles with Napoleon. Just to emphasise the magnitude of the change in mindset of these new governors. It's unbearably hot in Calcutta in the summer, so those that could afford to had a summer residence in the hills. Wellesley had a summer retreat built, at company expense, in Barrackpore, 60 miles north of Calcutta. As well as the beautiful landscape grounds included was an aviary, a menagerie and a theatre. And of course the governor needed a Calcutta residence worthy of his position. The governor's residence that Wellesley had built when he arrived in India. It was intended to look and feel like a palace, complete with throne room. The company directors were fuming at the waste of the equivalent of £4 million in today's money of company profits, and they charged Wellesley for misusing company funds and recalled him to England. So it's time to quickly wrap up the final years of the company. In 1805, the last remnants of Mughal rule, the Marathas, were defeated, marking the end of Indian rule in India. In 1813, the East India Company Act saw a significant reining in of the East India Company's powers, and made it clear the British Crown was now sovereign in India. And in 1857, the Indian Rebellion leads to the nationalisation of the company and the formal start of British Crown rule in India. And in 1857, it's usually taken by historians as the end of the company, but it would take another 20 years before it was formally dissolved. Respect of Indian culture that existed prior to 1813 went. British attitude was now one of anglicising the natives, and of British cultural, moral and racial superiority. The seeds were sown for the subsequent conflicts. Later, in seeking to justify this cultural chasm, who could we blame? Blame was placed on English women who were positioned as promoting British superiority. So now we know. <laughs> we'll read this out because I do love this. So, As well as the information that went between the East Indies and Britain, plants were exchanged. Shipping plants was always difficult. If the plant could be grown from seed, then seeds were easier to transport, but even seeds could be insects, decay or go mulberry. Plants particularly objected to salt seed spray, and this was the death of many specimens. One technique used was to break the journey at St Helena, a tropical island a thousand miles west of Africa in the South Atlantic. The company were granted a charter to run St Helena by Oliver Cromwell, and it was briefly a crown colony when Napoleon Bonaparte was exiled there. The company built a nursery on the island for plants to recuperate halfway during their journey home. And I have visions of a Florence Nightingale-type creature making her rounds through the rows of beds, administering a light folio feed here, a change of bedding there, and sadly, the composting of the weak and the infirm. <laughs> Another technique which worked for some plants was to plant the seeds and let them germinate en route. The real breakthrough occurred a couple of generations later when another physician and passionate botanist this time working in London, 
and Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward invented the terrarium, a totally sealed miniature glasshouse, and this remained the preferred way to transport plants until air flight became common. And Scotsman Robert Fortune used Ward's cases to transport to India 20,000 tea plants that he had smuggled out of China, starting the tea plantations in Assam and Darjeeling. And in conclusion then, I personally think we could be immensely proud of what the British East India Company achieved in its first 184 years of existence before it was taken over by the British government. East India Company made Britain great, not through war, but by trade and courage. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.